Well, good morning. Happy Easter. Are you guys excited? <laughs> this is a different day, man. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed it, but when I walked in the building today, there was a different energy, there was a different feel, there's a different look. Some of you look a lot more colorful than you normally do. I went the more subdued route. And uh, some of you guys are all dressed up and you're wearing your ties, and this is a special day in the year of the life of a Christian. And I don't know what you came here with today. I don't know what your hurt is. I don't know what your struggle is. I don't know what your issues are. I don't know what kind of craziness that you had to deal with to get your family through the door. I don't know how much candy you've eaten or whether your child got sick on the way. I know that the Easter baskets for some of you are still on the other end of the sermon and your kids are fidgeting going, please, dear God, make this man speak more quickly. (laughs) Trust me, I speak fast enough, okay? Don't leave here today without knowing this is a day of hope. It's a day of hope. It's a day of victory. All right, I'm going to tell you a couple of things at the beginning of this message that uh, I'm going to tell you, and it may sound confusing, so I'm going to explain it so you're not confused. First thing, you ready? Today is Easter, and today we're going to be talking about Easter from Psalm 22. Now, why is that confusing? It's confusing because Psalm 22 is in the Old Testament, and so, you know, most of us come to the Bible with this understanding that the Jesus part of the Bible is entirely contained in the New Testament. Therefore, Surely the Easter message is going to be a New Testament message. Not so surely. We're going to be in the New Testament time and again. We'll see what it says there, but we're going to be in Psalm 22. And what I want you to understand, first of all, is that the whole Bible, for all of its characters and all of its stories, is really primarily about one character, and it tells one story, and that is the life, and that is the death, and that is the burial. And since it's Easter, that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Psalm 22, though it is written by David 1,000 years before Jesus Christ is even born, And 300 years before crucifixion is introduced into the world as a means of execution, David has no concept whatsoever of crucifixion, though it's written a 1,000 years before Jesus and 300 years before crucifixion. David, by the Holy Spirit, gives us in Psalm 22 the prayer and the meditation of Jesus Christ as he suffers and as he dies on the cross, and then his celebration as he's raised from the dead. And I'm pretty sure you're going to see it. I think you'll see it. So that's the first confusing piece. We're going to be in Psalm 22. Don't let that throw you. Second confusing thing, we're going to talk about prayer today, and specifically this question of does God answer our prayers? Because Jesus prays a prayer in this psalm. David records it for us a thousand years before Jesus is even born, and it's a continuation, really, of the prayer that you know that he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane where he kneels before the Father, and he takes that cup that Julie just sang about, the cup of wrath for my sins and for yours. And he looks pretty intently into it, and he says, you know, um, is there another way? Lord, can I be delivered from having to drink this cup? And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. David continues, or David shows us the continuation of this prayer In Psalm 22, it is a prayer for deliverance, and it is not unclear. God is not sitting up in heaven going, you know, I'm not really sure that I understand what you're asking me here. Jesus is the master communicator. There's no ambiguity at all. It is a prayer for deliverance, and yet he will suffer, and yet he will die. And so the question is, well then, 
Did God answer his prayer? I mean, does God answer prayer? And I think we'd all agree that's a pretty relevant question. But on Easter? Easter's about the resurrection of Jesus, guys. And yet I want you to see before we're done that it is the resurrection of Jesus that answers that question. Okay? So writing a thousand years before Jesus is born, 300 years before crucifixion is even invented... David gives us this prayer, this meditation of Christ. And notice how it starts, because it starts with this really famous line, but it's not necessarily famous from Psalm 22. You're going to know this line, but you know it from the New Testament. David writes this, recording Jesus' prayer. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry, it's a lament, but it's also the very thing that Jesus cries out from the cross, as Matthew tells us in Matthew 27, 46. He says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out from the cross with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what's the deal with that? I mean, why does he say that? Well, I think he says it, as we'll talk about in a second, first of all, because he feels forsaken. My goodness, he has started his prayer for deliverance in the Garden of Gethsemane, and as we'll see, he continues his prayer for deliverance, and it's getting pretty clear at this point in the game that deliverance, at least as he's looking for it, isn't coming. So that's part of it. But I think maybe also there's this part where, you know, back in the days of Jesus, they didn't have the Bible as we have the Bible. I mean, they, they had the Word of God, the Old Testament and the Psalms, but it's not in a book and it's not paged through and it's all nicely numbered in the way that it is for us today. And so if I want to refer you to Psalm 22, I just say, well, you know, turn in your Bible to Psalm 22 and you're very capable of doing that. Back then, there were no numbers. Do you know how you referred somebody to Psalm 22? You just said the first phrase. You said, my God, my God, Why? Have you forsaken me? Oh, it's Jesus' experience on the cross. He's feeling forsaken, to be sure, but is he not also in saying in that moment, hey, go read this psalm. Take a good look at this psalm. It's my prayer. It's my meditation, and it will be my celebration. David recording the prayer of Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he develops this feeling further. He says, why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, he's suffering, he's dying, he's cried out for deliverance. Deliverance doesn't look like it's coming. And he feels abandoned. He feels forsaken. And maybe you can relate to that. You know, you prayed for a marriage and it ended in divorce. Hey, guess what? That's not what you prayed for. You prayed for your business, it failed. You prayed for a wayward child, still wayward last you checked. You prayed that somebody wouldn't die and they did. Or maybe they were so suffering you prayed they would and they lingered. Maybe you prayed you could hang on to your house in this economy and right now, half your stuff is in storage somewhere. And you're living in some place, you're renting. You get the idea? Here's the point. I can go on and on with these illustrations. I mean, we could order lunch and hang out, and I could just keep right on trucking, but I don't have to do that. And here's why I don't have to do that, because right now, your own heart is illustrating this point for me as it calls forth out of the, out of the depths of your own hurt, example after example after example, where you prayed for deliverance. And at least from your perspective, it sure doesn't seem like deliverance ever came. 
Now, what do you think in those moments? Because I think it sounds something like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, do you answer prayers or what? What is it? David recording this prayer of Christ on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, he says, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. He's saying, I cry out 24 hours a day right now, day and night, and I find no rest. No rest from what? Let's not brush over it. No rest from the agony and the torment of the cross. And so if you know the rest of the psalm, Jesus throws his hands up in the air and says, fine, you've forsaken me, and I will now forsake you. Is that what he does? Absolutely not, but it is what we do. We stop praying. It's like, God, let me down. Well, that's it then. We stop coming to church. We stop reading the Word of God. We stop, you know, following Christ. We just kind of throw our hands up in the air and say, fine, that's the way you want it. I'm done. That is not the example of faith, and it is not the example of our Lord. And what does He find strength? It's very interesting Because here he starts his meditation, you see. He says, yet you are holy, enthroned, he says, on the praises of Israel. So he calls out this image that's really profound, and you need to keep it in mind all the way through this message. He's imagining the people of God gathered together in the temple of God, worshiping God, but here's the key. They are worshiping God for having answered their prayers for deliverance. That's the key. They're worshiping God for doing for them exactly what it is that Jesus, as he's suffering and dying on the cross, is wanting God to do for him. He says, yet you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. You're in the temple. They're they're, they're worshiping you. In you, our fathers trusted. He's recalling examples of God's faithfulness. In desperate circumstances like this, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried in their dark and desperate moments and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Instead of forsaking God, Jesus is clinging to God and His memory is running to His rescue as He calls forth example after example after example of the character and of the great track record of faithfulness that God has in delivering His people, and He gets that track record where? From the Word of God. Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word, and something that we need more than anything else in the midst of our desperate circumstances is faith. Jesus consoles Himself With God's word, he says, in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And so having reminded himself of God's character and of his many deliverances in desperate circumstances just like his, he begins now to recount for the Lord his desperate circumstances. He says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. He's saying, look, Lord, as I look around here from my vantage point on the cross, I can see pretty clearly that there is not a human being on planet earth that I can look to to deliver me right now, for even my own most intimate followers have fled from me in fear. I am abandoned and forsaken by everyone. He says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads, which to a Jew is a great insult. And what do they say in mockery of him as they wag their heads at him? Don't miss this. 
They say he trusts in the Lord. Let him, meaning the Lord, deliver him. Let the Lord, they're saying, rescue him for he delights in him. And you can hear their sarcasm. And again, if you're not careful, you know, you'll get confused and think you're in Matthew 27 because listen to what Matthew says. It says, those who passed by, meaning passed by Jesus as he's hanging there, suffering and dying on the cross, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, sarcastically, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So the chief priest with the scribes and the elders, those who comprise the leadership of Israel, the royalty of Israel, mocked him saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, quote-unquote. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. And now listen to this, because it's straight out of Psalm 22. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. Sound familiar? I think David would recognize that. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he, God, desires him. If he's so valuable to God, well, then surely God will deliver him. Let him answer his prayer for deliverance. Does he answer those prayers? For he, Jesus, said, I am the Son of God. Surely God would come to the rescue of his own Son. But instead, he's on a tree. All men have forsaken him. His only hope for deliverance is in the Lord. And he's prayed for deliverance, and it's getting real obvious that at least the deliverance that he prayed for isn't coming. And so Jesus strengthens himself a second time in this meditation. And in a way that I I think is going to be particularly poignant to you if you're a parent today. He says, yet you, meaning God, are he who took me from the womb. So now he's speaking of his own birth, you see. You made me trust you at my mother's breast from the very first moments I was taught to trust you is the idea. On you I was cast From my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. What is he looking back upon? He's looking back upon his relationship with God and his walk with God that began where? At birth. The spiritual training and instruction of his parents. I would challenge you, if you're a parent today, to whom or to what will your children turn when the desperate times of life come? Because they're coming. And as fun as baseball is, that's not going to do it. It's not going to help. We involve ourselves and our children's life and training in so many lesser things. What are you doing in this area of your life to train up your kids because they will take their cue from you and they need this training? Jesus says, be not far from me, for trouble is near. And there is none to help. Then he goes on and he starts describing his enemies. And he describes them, and it's kind of a $10 term, okay, in in zoomorphic language, meaning he describes them like animals. And, And it's interesting, the animals that he chooses. He says, many bulls, there you go, that's the first one, encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. And so his enemies are like bulls. They're strong, they're powerful, they're brutal, they're cruel. They're untamable in many ways. 
But that's not all. It's not the only kind of animal. He then says, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. What is the lion in the bestial kingdom? He's the king. It's the chief priests. It's the leadership. And they're ravening. They're roaring, you see. And then he begins to describe the urgency of his situation, the idea being, if you don't come quick, I mean, really, this is, you know, the clock's running here. A thousand years before crucifixion is even, I mean, 300 years before crucifixion is even invented. The Lord through David cries out, I am poured out like water. I am emptied out. I've got nothing left. And all of my bones are out of joint. The idea being that he looks distorted. He looks inhuman. He's disfigured beyond recognition. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breath. It no longer beats with a sure and certain beat. It's, it's palpating. It, 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 it's, it's going to stop before too much longer. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, like a shattered clay pot. My strength is useless to me, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. For people who are crucified, guys, die of asphyxiation. See, the very position that they're hung in is such that it makes it hard to breathe. And so they, they crucify you with a bend in your knees so you can push up on the nails, in Jesus' case, with your feet and <gasps> gasp. And your mouth dries out. That's why he cries out from the cross, I thirst. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Time is running out for dogs. You see, there's the third one. You've got the bulls, the lions, and now the dogs, which represent that which is unclean in the Bible. As a dog lover, I, I was ashamed to have to admit that. I thought it was going to be the cat, but I'm convinced, however, that it's not the poodle. So, but he says, for dogs encompass me, unclean people. A company of evildoers encircles me. And then he says, they have pierced my hands and feet. So how do you explain that? I mean, you know, not a lot of people are arguing over when David lived or when David wrote or when the Persians in 700 B.C. invented this great instrument of torture that the Romans then took up and used as crucifixion. Or when Jesus lived died and was crucified. A little bit of argument over the resurrection. I'll be honest about that, but, but how do you explain this? They have pierced my hands and feet. David has no concept of crucifixion. I can count all my bones. Why can you count all your bones, Jesus? Because people were crucified naked. It, the injury was not just to the body, it was to the modesty as well. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. They roll the dice. They gamble for my clothes. And again, if you're not careful, you think you're in Matthew, because Matthew in chapter 27, verse 35, says that when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. It's rather striking. So David here is clearly enabled by the Holy Spirit to write the prayer and the meditation of Christ as he suffers and dies on the cross. But it's a prayer for what? Because it's a prayer for deliverance. And yet he suffers and dies on the cross. I mean, they take down his body. The Roman executioners, who are experts in all things death, sign the death warrant. It's a legal requirement. They embalm his body. 
So does God answer prayer or what? I mean, that's what's disturbing because you look at that and go, well, you know, I mean, if he won't answer his prayer, what hope do I have? Hang on because we're getting to that, okay? Today is about hope. David writes the words of Christ. He says, I can count all my bones because I'm naked. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off because I don't have a lot of time left. Deliver my soul, again he cries, from the sword. It just means simply from death. Deliver my soul from death, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, you see? And then he says something that's just bizarre, or so it seems. It's like all of a sudden he's cruising, and then he just, it's like this major break, and he says, you, and the next word's really important, he says, have, and it's important because it's past tense. He says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen, from the bulls. And you're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, I'm a little confused because Jesus is dying on the cross. Jesus dies on the cross, took his body down, executioner's death warrant, wrapped him up, embalmed him, put him in the grave. I mean, what's going on here? You have rescued me, he says, from the horns of the wild oxen. And then he reaches back into the earlier image of the psalm of the people of God gathered together in the temple of God, worshiping God, but worshiping God for what? For answering their prayers. And he puts himself in the midst of that congregation and joins the celebration as if to say, and God has answered my prayer too. And you're like, no, 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 no. You died, Jesus. Yeah. He did. And yet he celebrates and says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name, he says to my brothers, in the midst of the congregation, meaning in the midst of the temple, I will praise you and what is his praise. He says, you who fear the Lord, praise him, all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. But why? For he has not despised or abhorred the afflictions of the afflicted. And he's pointing all of us who feel like we are afflicted to look at him as the consummate example of the fact that God does not despise the afflictions of the afflicted. And yet it's still a little confusing because he died. But he's saying, look at me. And he has not hidden his face from him, from the afflicted, but has heard when he cried. So what happened to my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, what explains this? What is it that allows Jesus, who endured the humiliation and the agony of the cross, un? to death, to in this part of the psalm, just turn right around and all of a sudden start praising God and proclaiming that He was in fact delivered and God did answer His prayer. And the answer to that is Easter. It's the resurrection. It is the resurrection that explains it. You see, the answer to the prayer of Jesus didn't come on Good Friday as Jesus, the God-man, who perfectly obeyed the law of God and all of its requirements in our behalf hung there on the cross on a tree, cursed of God, bearing the curse of the law that we deserve. It didn't come on Good Friday. It didn't come on Good Friday as Jesus, the one who knew no sin, as Paul says, became sin in our place. He took upon Himself our sin. It didn't come on Good Friday as Jesus, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, gave His life that His blood 
might cover over all of our sin, and He might make an end of it once and for all. The answer to the prayer of Jesus did not come on Good Friday, folks. Thank the Lord. But it did come on Easter morning. Jesus was not delivered from the experience of death. He was delivered from death itself. And that is far and away more profound. See, if Jesus had been delivered on Good Friday, He'd have been the only one delivered. And we'd all be left in our sin. But because He experienced the suffering and death in our place, and He was delivered from death on Easter, He was delivered with all of us who put our faith and trust in Him, and that is by far a greater deliverance. So God did, in fact, answer the prayer of Jesus. But here's the thing. He answered it at a better time and in a better way. And so often in life, that's the case for us as well. We pray and we pray and we pray for deliverance. And sometimes He delivers us. You know, I had people come up to me after the first service. Well, God, I asked for this on this day, and He gave it to me on that day. I'm like, well, good for you. I'm a little jealous. Would you pray for me? You know, I... But he doesn't always. He answers his prayers, our prayers, at a better time, in a better way. He has a different vision. He has a different wisdom. He has a different perspective. He has a different purpose and playbook than we do. He answers our prayers at a better time and in a better way. And in those times where it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do we cling to? We cling to the Word of God, which shows and teaches us about His character and gives us example after example of His great deliverance and calls us to see with eyes, you see, a deliverance that we can't see with our natural eyes and to imagine the reality of a God who is working a greater deliverance in us than anything that we could ever ask or imagine. And I hope for our children that they will look to the training of their parents, moms and dads, who make matters of spirituality and relationship with Christ the number one priority. So having been raised from the dead and with one foot in this world and one foot in the next, Jesus Christ can say, God answers prayers. He says, for he has not despised or abhorred the afflictions of the afflicted and I, the risen one. Well, I'm qualified to tell you all about it. Now, it may feel like he has. And he has not hidden his face from him, though sometimes it it seems that way. But he has heard him, he has heard us when we cry out to him. And so then what's the proper response? It's worship. It always is. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, Jesus says. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted, that's us, shall eat. And what shall we eat? The bread of his body broken for our sins and the blood, the wine of his blood that is shed, that we might have life and be eternally satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord as his gospel goes forth. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, meaning every single 
one of us, for we are mortal. Even the one who could not keep himself alive, even the dead will rise one day and worship him. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. And what is their message? What's our message? That he has done it. Has done what? That he has answered the prayer of Christ for deliverance. The message is that Jesus lives, that Jesus is risen, and that Jesus offers salvation and eternal life to all who come to Him. They shall proclaim that God has answered the prayer of Jesus at a better time and in a better way. Happy Easter. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the message of Easter, for it is hope. God, I pray that You would encourage us in our spirits if despair has beset us. I ask, Lord, that by Your Word You would give us faith, by Your Spirit You would give us strength, that You would call us to Your glorious Son, that You would make us to believe in Your gospel that You would give us hope in this One who, with His life, conquered sin, with His resurrection, conquered death, and who freely offers salvation to all who believe. Our destiny through faith in Him is not one of death. Lord, it is one of life. It is one of peace. It is one of joy. It is one of hope. Help us to see that, God, today, and to worship you accordingly. Amen.